Our scripture reading this morning is from Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. You can find that on page 999 in your pew Bibles. My name is Lena Bating, and I'm a longtime member of McLean Presbyterian Church. Follow along with me. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Let me say welcome again. My name is Rob, and I am one of the assistant pastors here at McLean, and we are thankful that you are with us this morning, whether you're here with us in the sanctuary or in the fellowship hall or joining us on our live stream. This Sunday, we have come to the conclusion of our sermon series on Titus and looking at what it means to live lives of joyful obedience. And as I start this morning, I want to start with a question, uh, a question especially to those uh, who are runners. Have you ever eaten fried chicken while you were on a run? (laughs) All right. Now, uh, if you missed last Sunday, you missed, uh, that was a poor Sunday to miss because James asked the question if you've ever eaten a donut on a run. And then he made the point that Our lives as Christians that have been transformed by the goodness of Christ should be just as compelling as the smell of Krispy Kreme donuts. And then it gave everybody donuts, all right? And now I'm supposed to follow up after that. So there may or may not be fried chicken uh, (laughs) after the service. but there's not going to be uh, fried chicken. And especially since this is what I just saw after the first service, I, I need to be clear, okay? Because like the look of expectation after the benediction and then the look of disappointment and despair when people realize there was no fried chicken, uh, okay? But you know here at McLean, we believe grace is better than even fried chicken. And you will get grace this morning, all right? Over the past several weeks, uh, I've been intrigued with a particular figure in uh, Victor Hugo's novel, Les Miserables. It's a gentleman named uh, Bishop Muriel. And uh, I've seen the musical and the movie, and, and, and in the novel, he really unpacks this figure more and more, and you appreciate him as you make your way through those pages. If you've seen the movie or musical, you know that scene where Jean Valjean, he's been released from prison uh, 19 years uh, He's been there and he finds his way to the bishop's door and he's had a hard time finding a place to stay because he's a convict and everywhere he goes, every town, every inn, you know, he has to produce this yellow passport that says exactly what he is. And so no one will let him stay there. He comes to the bishop's door uh, and the bishop invites him in and says, come, you can, you can eat with us and you can sleep here. 
And, and Jean Valjean can't wrap his head around this hospitality. He says to the, wait, you realize I'm a convict. Like you've been calling me sir in this conversation, but everyone else, they, they call me dog. Did, you saw my, my passport, right? And, and hear what Hugo writes. The bishop who was sitting close to him gently touched his hand. He says, you cannot help telling me who you were. This is not my house. It is the house of Jesus Christ. This door does not demand of him who enters whether he has a name, but whether he has a grief. You suffer. You are hungry and thirsty. You are welcome. And do not thank me. Do not say that I receive you in my house. No one is at home here except the man who needs a refuge. I say to you, who are passing by, that you are much more at home here than I am myself. Everything here is yours. What need have I to know your name? Besides, before you told me you had one, which I knew. The man opened his eyes in astonishment. Really? You knew what I was called? Yes, replied the bishop. You are called my brother. And the figure of the bishop is made all the more intriguing when you find out that Victor Hugo's son, Charles, uh, he, he, who was no fan of the church, he objected strongly to his dad's use of the bishop for such a noble role. So, hey, dad, why don't you use like a more modern liberal profession, maybe like a physician for such a noble role to which his father said to him, this pure and lofty figure of true priesthood offers the most savage satire on the priesthood today. You see, the role of the bishop in Hugo's novel is to call out his contemporary church, to be an indictment against them because they weren't living like their Christ. And they weren't living like Christ calls his followers to live. I wonder, I wonder if we are living that way, or I wonder if uh, Hugo's bishop serves as an indictment against us as well. We come to the end of Titus, where again, we see Paul's going to try to help us connect the dots between the gospel and grace and joyful obedience. So let's pray. Merciful and mighty Father, we do ask that you would speak to us this morning through your word. Some of us may very well be sitting here in complacency, and we need you to confront us with your holiness. Some of us may be here this morning devastated or confused, and, and we need your tenderness to comfort us. Wherever we are, would you meet us, would you speak to us, and would you transform us by your spirit and for your glory? In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. This morning we're at the end of Paul's letter to Titus, and it is just that, it's a letter. All right, it's taken us six weeks to make our way through it, but if you remember back to the first sermon, uh, James read the entire letter in a little less than six minutes. If you haven't done that yet, if you haven't just sat down and read the entire letter yourself, let me encourage you, find six minutes today, sit down and read this letter for yourself in its entirety. 
All right, it's a letter. You and I write letters, or at least we write emails. And when we write them, often uh, we have a certain tone or tenor to them. When we're, depending on who we're writing, the same is true for this letter for Paul. He has a certain tone or tenor, and it's one that uh, we are familiar with. It's one that we use occasionally. What Paul is doing here in this letter, remember, he's going to great lengths to make sure Titus and those in Crete and you and I understand what it means to connect the dots between gospel and joyful obedience, between grace and godliness. He's, he's trying to crystallize that for his readers. He's trying to make sure they understand it. He's almost belaboring the point. And we, sometimes we have conversations where we're trying to belabor the point, right? Kids, parents, maybe this is a familiar discussion. Um, Susie, I, I need you to go clean your room, all right? And by clean your room, I don't mean shove everything under your bed, all right? I do mean make your bed. All right, by cleaning your room, I mean I need you to take all 15 cups that have somehow found their way in here to the kitchen and not just the three with curdled milk. That's what I mean by cleaning your room. Or maybe you have a friend who is habitually late. Hopefully, don't be that friend, all right? Hopefully, you're not that friend. But maybe you have that friend and you've at least wanted to have this discussion, right? I'm going to pick you up at 7.30. By 7.30, that means you you need to start getting ready before 720, all right? By 730, I mean, please be looking out the door, the window, and like walk out the door when I get there. By 730, that's the latest we can leave and hope to get there on time. Belaboring the point, something of what Paul's doing here with Titus, because he's saying, listen, this is what it means to connect the dots between gospel and godliness, between grace and joyful obedience. And he starts out and he says, this is what connecting the dots looks like for leaders of the church, all right? This is what connecting the dots looks like for older men and, and, and older women. This is what connecting the dots looks like for younger men and younger women. In, in your home, this is what connecting the dots looks like among your family. And, and he says like, hey, the, there, there's some of these Cretans over here and look at the way they're living. That's what not connecting the dots looks like. And James last week talked about connecting the dots in such a way that outsiders look in and, and they want to know what's behind that kind of joyful obedience, that kind of living. And so we get to the end of Titus, the last few verses here, and Paul has one final warning and one final reminder. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. One final warning and one final reminder. If you remember verse 8, last week, James, old uh, St. Crispy Cream himself, unpacked it for us um, to help us see that that we've been loved by Christ in such a way that we can live like him. And at the end of verse 8, it ends with saying that doing this is excellent and profitable for all people. That is, living this way is really awesome. It's, it's really good. It's, it's good for you and it's good for those around you. you. It's good when believers know Christ's love in such a way that they live like him. It's, it's excellent and profitable. But then the first verse of our passage this morning, verse 9, if you put your finger there, you'll see word number one, but. It's as if Paul says, yes, this is excellent and profitable. Living this way is great. But you want to know what's not excellent and profitable? Foolish controversies, 
genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law. Yeah, he goes on to say those things are actually unprofitable and worthless. Paul's already touched on this back in the first chapter, verse 14, where he said, yeah, there's these people that are talking about Jewish myths and the commands of people. Uh, Avoid those people, avoid those types of topics. Because, you know, and they're bickering about genealogy and their their lineage, um, about these matters of the law. That's serving as a distraction from the gospel. That's serving as a distraction from godly living. So avoid those things. They've obviously, in the midst of those things, missed Jesus and missed his good news. They've apparently missed what Jesus said in John chapter 5, that you, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's actually they that bear witness about me. So like, sure, you're having these religious discussions and you're having these religious debates, but in the midst of them, you're missing Jesus and his good news completely. Titus, avoid those kinds of discussions and debates. They are a distraction. He also says, avoid people who stir up division. Not those who occasionally disagree, not those who have honest and thoughtful questions, not those who graciously inquire if you've thought about an alternative, but those who stir up division, those who are committed to dividing and separating, causing and creating disunity. He said, listen, warn them once, warn them a second time, and then after that, having nothing, have nothing to do with them. They're, they're self-condemned, that is it's clear by their attitudes and their actions that they haven't understood the love of Christ in such a way that changes the way that they live. Can we, can we have a little bit of self-awareness chat right now as a family? Self-awareness is always your friend, all right? As reformed Presbyterians, as a reformed Presbyterian congregation, and if this morning you, you don't know what that means, then I'm not talking to you. All right? Uh, Just think about the fried chicken that you're not going to get at the end of the service for a little bit. All right? But as as a reformed uh, Presbyterian congregation who, who can at times have an affection for the cerebral, who at times can have a penchant for academic inquiry and discussion and debate, it's always helpful that we check ourselves, right? That we ask ourselves, you know, am I always in Bible study? ever in Bible study and never on bar stools sharing a drink with my neighbor that they might know how Christ has changed my life. Am I enthralled? Are we enthralled with church history but apathetic when it comes to loving and serving single or unwed mothers in our city? Loving them like Christ loves them. Uh, Are we aware that being theologically correct and right about something does not give us the right to be, what's the word, a jerk? Okay, Uh, are we aware of those realities? Listen, as a church, we're going to come against hard issues and conflict, but we need to be sure of this, that Jesus cares just as as much about how we deal with it as to where we land. He cares just as much about that as the process, as the destination. All right, and so please, 
know that I am all for study. I am all for an intellectually rigorous engagement of God's word. I've given much of my life to it. But we should regularly ask ourselves, are my studies and are my discussions leading to internal and external fruit, right? Am I becoming more like Jesus and are people experiencing more of Jesus around me because of what I'm studying and the studies I'm going to? That is, am I becoming a disciple that makes a difference? We need to ask ourselves those kinds of questions because if not, then those studies and all that we're doing are unprofitable and worthless. So Paul tells Titus, avoid those issues, avoid those people, their distractions. And then he has this final reminder, starting in verse 12, he He starts speaking about some personnel transitions going on. He says, check it out. I'm going to send a couple guys to you there in Crete. We really don't know much about Artemis. Uh, Paul mentions Tychicus a couple of times in his other letters. And it's apparent he's a guy who gets it. He gets this grace and godliness stuff. Paul says, when those guys get there, Titus, I need you to come here to me in Nicopolis. I've decided to spend the winter here. And it's helpful to know something about the geography and climate of Nicopolis. Um, Nicopolis is the kind of place that really nobody wants to spend the winter. It is not a, it's not a desirable destination. Think Delaware, all right? And not like coastal, not like coastal beach Delaware, all right? But like Wilmington, Delaware in the winter, all right? Like no one's really excited to go there, all right? And I'm sorry if you're from Wilmington, Delaware, but again, self-awareness is our friend. Um, if, if you know the harshness and severity of Nicopolis, then you know Paul is signaling. He's, he's actually contrasting himself from the guys he talks about in the first chapter who says they're, they're disrupting whole families, whole churches for selfish gain. And he's saying, listen, I've decided to stay in Nicopolis. So if I was in this Christianity thing for what I could get out of it, for my personal gain, for my personal comfort, then there's no way in the world I would decide to spend winter here. But I have. Because that's how important the gospel and grace is to me. I'm going to spend it in an undesirable destination. Hey, guess what, Titus? I need you to come and join me as well. Okay, so come here. And oh yeah, Titus, uh, Zenus, and Apollos, they're there with you. I need you to make sure you send them on their way and they have what they need. And it seems like that almost prompts him to give uh, Titus and the people in Crete one last reminder. To, to say the whole theme of the letter one more time, and you see it there in verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. It's if he, it's if he says, yeah, Titus, I need you to help these guys out, uh, help them get on their way. And oh yeah, by that, remind our people, help them learn that this is the kind of stuff they need to be about. They need to learn how to do this stuff, recognize real needs and be about meeting them so that they don't waste their lives. And please remember, this is not a call to moralism. As as James said, this isn't talking about uh, being good for goodness sake. We've made it clear that Jesus doesn't call you to live in a way that he hasn't already lived. He doesn't call you to give 
Something that you haven't already been given. Christians don't go out and seek to meet the urgent needs of those around them because they hope to curry favor with God. They actually seek to go out and meet the urgent needs of those around them because they've had all their urgent needs met by Christ. In Christ, your needs, great and small, have been met. In Christ, you've been given direction, purpose, security, fulfillment, identity in a way that no other religion and no other worldview can. And not just these overarching issues have been met in Christ, but your daily needs, your daily bread. In Matthew chapter 6, Christ speaks to his followers and he says, listen, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. Listen, if you'll just be about the business of the Father extending his kingdom of mercy, he's got you. He'll provide those things for you. And our most urgent need for you and for me this morning is for something to be done about the brokenness and rebellion that separates us from our creator. And Christ is taking care of that as well. He's lived a life that we should have lived. He's, he's thought of others and helped others' needs for all the times that we made it all about ourselves. And he took the penalty that we deserved by dying his death on the cross. And in seeing that he's done that, we can trust he will take care of all of our other needs. If you're here this morning and you're, you're not a follower of Christ, maybe you're still investigating. One, we're glad that you're here. This is a safe space. We hope you can ask your questions to learn more about who Jesus Christ is. And two, the call to you this morning is not to give, not to help, but to receive. To receive the grace and salvation of Christ. And if you're here and you're a Christian, you have received. But let me ask you this, are, are you still receiving? Are you still meeting with your Savior regularly in, in, in his word and in prayer? Are you, are you a part of a small community that knows you and points you to Christ? Are you, are you still receiving? Because here's the thing about giving and helping. If you got nothing, you got nothing to give, right? And this is the challenge. That doesn't stop the output from happening. You still bring something to the table. You just bring yourself. Right, You just bring your resources and your capacities. And I'm well aware that the last thing the world needs is more of Rob Yancey apart from Christ. The world needs Jesus. And if I hope to bring Jesus to them in word and deed, then I need to spend time with him and receive from him. What's your plan this week to receive from your Savior? Receiving from him. Being loved by him, we're called to, to be devoted to good works, to help uh, cases of urgent need. Let, let's go back to Les Mis. You read those pages uh, of the novel and you get to the scene, actually how he wound up at the bishop's door. All right, you see that dialogue there. He's been everywhere. He actually tried to sleep out in a field. That didn't go well. And so he's wound up on a bench in the town and this lady comes up to him. She says, you can't possibly spend the night here. You must be cold and hungry. Someone would surely take you in out of charity. To which Valjean gruffly says, I've knocked at every door. She goes on, you really mean, and he, and he interrupts, and he says, I've been turned away everywhere. The lady touched his arm and 
pointed across the square to a small house beside the bishop's palace. Have you really knocked at every door? Yes. Have you knocked at that door? No. Then do. I love it. I love that this lady knows that the bishop is so zealously committed to good works that there's no way that JVJ had knocked on that door, right? It's like she says, no. No, no, if you knocked on that door, then you'd be snug as a bug in a rug instead of out here freezing your tail off on this bench. You didn't knock on that door. And that's, that's my prayer for my life. Right, that I would know the love of Jesus in, in such a way that when people see me and they see an urgent need, they say, you should go talk to that guy. You should go knock on his door. And I've got a lot of room to grow there. That, that's the prayer for my boy's life, that they would come to be men like that. That's my prayer for us as a family at McLean. Can you imagine, uh, what, what about students at, uh, at George Mason or at Marymount? What, what, what if Christians on those campuses just became known when people ask about, hey, what about the Christians on your campus? Yeah, those are the people that meet urgent needs. Those are the people that step in and help. Maybe it's a ride to the grocery store. Maybe it's making an international student feel, feel welcome. Maybe it's listening to someone as they battle with mental health issues and creating a safe place for them and walking with them as they seek to get treatment. What if at Langley or Woodson High School, what if the Christians there were known as, hey, yeah, those are the kids that are just kind to everybody. Like, yeah, the cool kids and the outcasts, like, they're just, they're good with everybody. And they actually help, help tutor as well. Like, if kids are struggling, like, yeah, the Christians are known, like, they'll help you out in your class. Several months, we're going to be starting a site in Fairfax. And my prayer there is that, that the gathering of Christians there, if you ask around their neighborhoods or their workplaces, that people would say, yeah, oh yeah. Um, yeah, I've seen some people's lives come off the rails. I've seen calamity strike. And that young lady right there, yeah, she stepped in and got her hands dirty. She helped. That family right there, they, they opened up their home and they made a difference. Yeah, I, I, know, I know those Christians that meet there in Fairfax. Think with me if there were a place down in D.C. That everything about it, that, that, that the physical facilities reflected the warm and welcoming heart of God so that when, when men and women find themselves facing some of the darkest circumstances, the people around they, they point at that place and they say, there, there, Capitol Hill Pregnancy Center. Have you knocked on that door? Have you rung that doorbell? Then do. And we have hope this morning that we can live those kinds of lives. We have hope that we can live the beautiful lives where people say, yeah, go knock on their door. And that hope for you and for me is that we always have a door that we can go knock on. Right? Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says again, if you have needs, you can knock on the Father's door and he stands ready to open for you as his child. Not because of anything you've done, and in, actually in spite of all that you've done, because of the grace of Christ 
Today, tonight, tomorrow, for every day of your life, the Father stands ready to open the door and care for you. That's our hope for living this kind of life for others. So so don't be distracted. Don't lose the plot. Rest and rejoice in the love of Christ and then live your life giving it away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to see this day all that we have in Christ. Identity and community, purpose and fulfillment, friends, food, houses. Help us to see all that we've been blessed with and given, especially the grace and salvation that your Son has brought to us. And seeing that, living in that, help us to go and love and serve, live lives of joyful obedience, meeting needs of those around us so that they might know your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.